Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can uh, make sure that they are in fellowship. We had a you know, out of the mouths of babes event last Saturday when we had the uh, baptism ceremony, and one of the those who was getting baptized was Bob Guerra's granddaughter Lillian. And just as I was getting ready to pray, she said, "Pastor Dean, you're going to make sure we have time to confess our sins, aren't you?" So at least somebody's getting the point. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so very grateful for all the things that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, that we need to learn to live each day as you have given it to us and look for the opportunities that we have each day to uh, communicate your grace to those around us, to exhibit it in the way we live, to demonstrate it in the way we interact with people, to manifest your love to one another, and to take advantage of whatever opportunities we have to make the gospel clear whether that's done in a small way or in a large way often depends on the circumstances but we have been given this wonderful privilege to uh, share in the communication of the great and wonderful news that we have forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior and father we pray that you would uh, continue to challenge us in that way but also to press on beyond just simple salvation to understand the significance and importance of our day-to-day Christian life and especially as we continue our study in Romans 12, we pray that you'd help us to uh, implement, see how to implement these things into our lives, that it might uh, radically transform the way we think. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, with all of the events yesterday, we're going to do a little review, which is uh, actually a lot of what I covered last week, but I'm just going to cover it a little more quickly tonight. And so that we can continue to set up where I'm going in this particular study. Romans 12, 1 and 2, as I've stated the, each of the last previous lessons, is a critical passage. The more I have studied this over the last, I think, 10 years or so, the more I think this is really the blueprint for, this, for the Christian life. Paul begins, I beseech you, I urge you, I challenge you. This is a direct challenge to each and every one of us. I challenge you by the mercies of God, and notice if you have your Bible open, and you should, by the mercies of God is the same Greek phrase except for the change in noun as you have at the beginning of verse 3 where Paul goes on to say, For I say through the grace given to me, through the grace and 
by the mercies translate the same basic grammatical phrase in the Greek. It's and it should be translated by or through the mercies and use the same English preposition in both cases. That on the basis of those mercies that God has poured out to Paul, which He pours out to every believer which is what he's explained in the past 11 chapters, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Bible doctrine is not just an academic exercise in learning things about God and learning theology, but it implies and demands a change, a course of action in our lives, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, and the word there has to do, it's it's a logical deduction. Once we understand what God has done for us in his grace, the logical, rational deduction is that we should serve him. The way we do this is then further explained in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's the negative. The verb there, suskematizo, has the idea of being pressed into the mold. I used the example last week of how... uh, of the pressure of the world system, as in the example with Phil Robertson and the whole Doug Dynasty thing, which has died down somewhat. But I did hear that that <clears throat> uh, a colleague of mine has put out, has opened his mouth as usual whenever the press is around and stated that what Phil Robertson did was analogous to the man who wanted to force Rosa Parks to go to the back of the bus. Of course, the fact that this came from Reverend Jesse Jackson is no surprise. He has now firmly planted his feet in the anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian mode. Uh, and he's, he just, he says there's no reason for him to say that. Well, what about the verse that he quoted? Aren't you a Christian pastor? I was, I, I was driving back from Louisiana this morning and I, when I heard that, I'm thinking, what kind of Christianity do you hold that takes a razor blade to various passages in the Scripture that identify homosexuality as a sin? And then you say that that's akin to racism. This is, this, this is just an example of what we're developing when we talk about uh, modern and postmodern thinking, is that it turns everything inside out, and we no longer have, a, have a, any kind of infinite reference point by which to evaluate anything once we get it, think like the world. And that's a perfect example of it. I just love it when the news gives me my illustrations. So we're pressured constantly to conform in to the world, to act like the world, or we're, we get threatened with all manner of different consequences. Instead, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that you may, and the word there, um, excuse me, the word for world is that idea of the, the thinking of the world of this time. We're going to see several different words for thinking as we go through this section, and we'll see more when we get down into verse 3. But this word, uh, ion, has to do with the, the, the thinking of the world system, but as it's expressed in different time periods. So every time period, that we go through has different nuances. Now they, they all, it's obvious to any thinking person that they all manifest the same lie of the devil, but every generation 
has different, it's dressed up in different clothes. And so those different clothes somehow disguise it for us because we're sheep, remember, we're not too bright. And so we have to come to understand how Satan's lie is being manifest in our generation so that we can understand it in terms of our own thinking. So we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which means that the Christian life is essentially thinking. It has to do with understanding how to think as God thinks. And it's not a life based on emotion, and it's not, uh, uh, it's not, the criteria for it is not based on emotion. It's based on thinking accurately and objectively according to God's revelation. And when we change the way we think, it change the way, changes the way we act. And by living that out, we demonstrate that, that God's will is good, acceptable, and complete. The word, King James translated it perfect, but that word should have the sense of complete. It's a, it's deals with the sufficiency of the scriptures. I then went to James 3, talked about the contrast between the thinking, the wisdom that is from above in verse 15 versus that which is earthly, demon, natural, and demonic. The word there for earthly means is focusing on it's what's manifested on the earth by the inhabitants of the earth. The word natural is the word sukikos in the Greek, translated natural also in 1 Corinthians 2.14 in reference to the soulish or unregenerate man who is unable to understand the things of God for they are spiritually revealed. So this is showing that this is that the false wisdom is that which comes from the creature that is not oriented to eternal things. And so this emphasizes these two worldviews that we have. You either think like the devil or you think like Jesus Christ, one or the other. And in our lives, from one moment to the next, we may be thinking according to God's principles, thinking like Christ, and then we're out of fellowship and we're thinking like the devil. And sometimes we may think we're just as, as, as neurotic or borderline psychotic as we can be, but that's because one moment we're thinking and living according to the scriptures and we're walking by the spirit, and then the next minute we're in rebellion and we're walking according to the sin nature and we're completely uh, out of fellowship. I then developed this little illustration as we closed last time talking about the fact that we all have a, a worldview. We all have a way of looking at the world. Every human being does. Uh, we think of the world in terms of our religious assumptions, in terms of uh, other intellectual assumptions, and I showed this in terms of basic assumptions every worldview has, uh, basic four areas, ultimate reality or what uh, philosophy calls metaphysics, that which is beyond the physical senses, and this refers to God, the theist, theism as a worldview, or it can refer to pantheism, it can refer to polytheism, it can refer to atheism, uh, it could refer to uh, the, the Darwinism and secularism, uh, and all of those have different views of what exists. Ultimately, materialism looks at the universe as only material and everything is controlled by material forces. 
from our understanding of ultimate reality. We also have a view of who we are as human beings. In terms of anthropology, we have a view of knowledge or epistemology as it's identified in, in philosophy. How do we know what we know? And then we have the, the practical outworking of those in terms of ethics and how, how do we live. All of these, as they go into that worldview mix master, get stirred up, and out fr- and from that develop different views of origin, different views of religion, man, nature, creation, science, uh, society, including marriage, family, politics, suffering, uh, and the solutions to suffering, law, and as well as the arts. And this is important because a lot of places where people pick up the world view of the of the of their time is through the arts through stories that that are read through the music that is heard not just the words in the music but the music itself music changes when the world view changes and just as everything else uh changes uh in in history so you you art and music uh all change when the presuppositions about ultimate reality change. So this is, and it also affects things like economics and, and, and business. So that's the worldview mix master. So when we break down a worldview, it's helpful to break it down in terms of the four fundamental uh, assumptions. What does it say about God or ultimate reality? What does it say about man and the nature of man? Is man basically good? Is man basically evil? Uh, knowledge, how do we know what we know? How do we know for sure? And ethics, and even the relationship of those four to one another. I identify the basic questions that every worldview seeks to answer is what is ultimate reality? What is reality? How do we know that it's real? What's the nature of external reality? Uh, what is mankind? Is mankind just the product of time plus chance? Is it just because there was an accidental spark and some uh, primordial ooze and out came and what developed from that uh, over a period of time is are, are sentient beings? Uh, what happens when a person dies? Are are we just composed of electronic impulses acting upon uh, different uh, aspects of our physical nature, or do we have volition and responsibility, or is that just something that we think we have, but it's actually just the function of chemical reactions within our body? If it's physical reactions within our body, then we're not really responsible, and that has huge impact on our understanding of law and punishment. And that is something that every lawyer deals with every every time in the courtyard. And, and many of you know Bob Guerin. He's a lawyer down the valley, and he's told me many times that it's getting so much worse than we imagine. Nothing that anybody does is their fault. Never. It's never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And this is accepted in the courts. It's not their fault. It's their parents' fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's the food that they ate. It's whatever it might be. It's the environment. It's the chemicals that are put out by the petrochemical plants. Whatever it is, it's never somebody's fault because they made a decision. And that flows out of a natural assumption that we're products of purely physical forces 
from a purely material universe. So we come to questions like knowledge, how do we how can we know, how do we know, and can we know anything with certainty? Then sixth, how do we know right from wrong? What determines right from wrong? What whenever anybody makes a statement, for example, going back to the uh, current event with uh, Phil Robertson and the Doug Dynasty controversy, what gives anyone the right to say that he was wrong? What gives him the right to say that homosexual behavior is sinful? Where do you get your absolutes? Where do you get the ability to say that something is right and something is wrong? If there's no no universal absolute outside of the human race, then we just make it up as we go along. And that's where we're going to see we end up with in postmodernism is everybody's story is competing and nobody has the right to a a what they call a meta narrative or an overarching story that determines absolute truth and so it's just pure competition so what gives anyone the right to come along and say anything that's where it boils down to power and what we see is th- those movers and shakers in our culture who understand this realize that in postmodernism when there's no absolute authority then the real issue is who has power and coming to a place of power and using that power regardless of what a constitution says or anything else says is how you have success and that's how it's measured so it it boils that's why we get into what we have today in terms of power politics what's the meaning of history is history going anywhere or is history just a a just a a just a, a random events that occur and it has no meaning and as Henry Ford said it's just one damn thing after another so is there meaning to history from a Christian viewpoint from a biblical Judeo-Christian viewpoint history is supremely important because history is the outworking of God's plan and history is going somewhere and God is going to eventually bring resolution to all of the conflicts and problems that take place within human history. So if you are opposed to God, what you will propose is that history is meaningless and you will uh, do everything you can to uh, demean history and to change history and to change the details of history and revise them to fit your story. That's a lot of what we see going on today. I ended last time with this diagram which uh, Charlie Clough developed, <clears throat> which I think is a, a great illustration of the whole principle of Romans one eighteen that when men reject the truth of God and the truth of his word, then they have to replace that with something. The Bible says that they're suppressing truth and unrighteousness. A biblical truth, any biblical principle, for example, the principle that Phil Robertson said last week about homosexuality being wrong, that immediately gets absorbed by the the systems of unbelief that are dominant in a culture, and they attempt to neutralize it to destroy it, to prevent it from having an impact on the culture. Now, a culture that is more influenced by biblical truth is going to, will, you'll, will witness less of this, but a culture that has 
uh, less biblical truth is going to see this happen again and again. And we live in a culture that is in decline. And so the forces that seek to uh, stamp out anyone who raises their voice for biblical truth, unless they've managed to to push them off into a one-hour segment of Sunday morning that is isolated from the other seven days of the seven and a, or six and a half days of the week, so that what is said from the pulpit has no real connection to everyday life, then they have a victory. Uh, but th- this is this is where the world is headed these days. What is the ultimate issue, or one of the ultimate issues in determining a world view from a Christian viewpoint has to do with understanding what we call a sin nature. A sin nature. A sin nature in Judeo-Christian thought means that human beings are born basically corrupt. We have been impacted by the sin of Adam, so that we are all corrupt in our thinking. That doesn't mean we can't do good and wonderful things. And many people do many good and wonderful things. But what it means is we are driven mostly by self selfish desires, uh, self-centered desires. We're driven by what's good for me. And we often do good things because ultimately it comes back uh, positively to us. That's that's our motivation. But we recognize this. And there's a huge worldview clash that is seen over this. As I pointed out, I believe, at the end of class the last time that, that Thomas Sowell in his book, Conflict of Vision, points out, uh, going back to uh, writers in the 18th century, that uh, the difference between conservatives and liberals is that liberals have a high view of man, that man is basically good, and he is perfectible. And the worldview of conservatives is that men can do wonderful things, but they're basically corrupt, and that there needs to be a guard or protection on that self-centeredness and that corruption. And so the difference between conservatives and liberals basically boils down to how they view man and how somebody views man and mankind and human nature is a reflection ultimately of how they view ultimate reality. And from a Judeo-Christian viewpoint, that means they have a view of a, uh, of a deity that is personal and infinite and righteous and sets the standard for what right and wrong is all about. So it's important to understand the nature of man because that sin nature affects how every human being interprets and understands the world around them from the time they come into the world. Now, the first area when talking about talking about ultimate reality is understanding the nature of God, that from a Judeo-Christian background, God is the creator who is totally distinct from the creation. We refer to this as the creator-creature distinction, that God is totally other. He's personal, which means he is not a force. 
He's not just a, an energy field out in the uh, heavens. He has revealed, and can, he, since he's personal, he can reveal himself to us. But he is also infinite. And that concept of infinity applies to all of his attributes. We apply it to his knowledge, and we call his knowledge omniscience. He has unlimited knowledge. He knows everything. God's knowledge is different from our knowledge in that our knowledge is acquired. We learn from day to day. We will never have infinite knowledge because we will never, as finite beings, we will never reach infinity. So even when you and I have been in heaven for uh, eons and eons, we will still have things to learn. God's knowledge, in contrast, is not acquired. He knows everything, everything possible and everything actual, and he has always known it, and he is always able to instantly know all of the interactions between all of the events that, that transpire. He never gains knowledge, and he never, never loses knowledge. So he, as personal, he's able to have a relationship with creatures. Even though he is infinite, he is able to express himself and to communicate to individuals. When we think about how the Bible presents God, starting with those opening chapters in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, God creates the human race in his image and likeness so that there is a, we are a finite counterpart to God so that he can communicate to us we can understand what he communicates to us. He's designed us in such a way as an omnipotent God who can do whatever he desires to do. He has created us in such a way so that we can understand what he is communicating. He has, as it were, uh, built the right receptors into us so that when he communicates, we can receive it and understand it. Now, that gets mucked up a little bit after the after Adam's sin because of sin in our lives, but it's not destroyed. It's just uh, rent the communication and reception, the reception of that communication is just rendered a little difficult. There's a little static in the airwaves. So God creates man as the ultimate in his universe because we are to rule over the universe as God's uh, representative, as his vicegerent. Now, not a vice-regent. Those are two different words. Vicegerent is someone who is set up to rule in the place of someone else. A vice-regent is like a vice-president. You have the regent and then you have the vice-regent, who's the uh, assistant or the one under the regent or the ruling power. We're not a vice-regent, we're a vice-gerent. We rule in God's place over his creation. Then he has placed man over the animals and over the vegetation, over matter and energy, over everything in creation to rule it uh, honestly and responsibly. This is the foundation for the true biblical view of environmentalism, not the pagan view of environmentalism that is dominant today. 
we, as Christians, we should emphasize the responsible and efficient use and development of all the natural resources on the planet. God put these and created these things in on the planet for our use and for our benefit. Now, when that's the left column on the chart. On the right column, what we see is very, uh, one form of a pagan approach to to deity. There's just the infinite impersonal universe. There's just matter. There's no personality out there. There's no individual in control. It's just matter. How matter can affect things uh, from a rational viewpoint, no one ever explains. That's just a huge uh, leap of irrational logic. People will say, well, the the universe is influencing this. Well, how? Explain that. That's just an irrational... Because they've rejected God, they have to apply religious language to an impersonal universe in order to give them some sort of comfort of an explanation of who they are and why they exist. Uh, man can't live as if there is no God. As the writer of Scripture says, that man has... Uh, a desire to know God, and when he removes God from that place, he puts something else there. He will worship the creation or a creature rather than the creator. So what man does is he comes along and he circumscribes all of the universe, the physical world that he can observe, and he places everything that he sees within that circle. That's why I have God, lowercase God, lowercase g, man and nature, man with a capital M, because mankind gets deified. Man becomes the ultimate reference point and determiner of truth and determiner of right and wrong. God becomes just as much a part of the mechanisms of the universe as everything else. This is seen clearly in some of the ancient uh, creation myths where, for example, in the Babylonian creation myth, uh, Tiamat is slain by Marduk and then the, earth, uh, the, the universe and the earth are made from those body parts. They're already pre, pre-existing, but everything is part of what's already in the universe. There's no ex nihilo creation that is creation out of nothing. So it depends on where you end up on this chart, on the left side with an infinite impersonal God or the right side with an infinite impersonal universe. Those are the the ultimate realities. Now, there are various uh, permutations that go that fall in between those those extremes, but that's basically what you're uh, what you're talking about. I think C.S. Lewis made the observation one time that that the two uh, the two extremes are either biblical theism, Judeo-Christian theism, or Hinduism, uh, because in Hinduism has a purely impersonal, infinite universe, and everything else somehow falls out in between. So, what's our view of ultimate reality? Now. As a theist, this is how we would we would think things through logically. As a theist, we're going to start with ultimate reality. But what really happened, I'll come back to this again in a minute, with the Enlightenment, was in the Enlightenment as it was uh, initiated by René Descartes, whose famous statement was, I think, therefore I am, 
shifts ultimate reality from out there and and ultimate and and uh, ultimate being to th- to thought to knowledge, and he and that this is what occurred during the. Um, uh, during the Enlightenment, which comes to be known as modernism, is that that the real issue is uh, how we think. The real issue is knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge, and so that shifts the center of the thinking there. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but just to let you know how things have sort of changed. This is part of what's usually referred to as the history of ideas. And it's really important to understand the history of ideas because we see where some of these things that are uh, influencing our culture today have their origin and how they fit with other things. So we started off talking about, first of all, ultimate reality. Then we talk about the basis for knowledge. How do we know what we know? And within the history of human thought, there are three basic ways in which man comes to know truth. Now, they are, each of these has a measure of truth to it. Okay, that's what makes some of these claims so, um, uh, so, so viable is because there, uh, there is an element of truth there. But it's not ultimate. So, on this chart, which you've seen many times, uh, we have three categories going across left to right, system, the starting point in the system, and the methodology. And the first system is rationalism. Now, we can talk about ancient rationalism, which was exemplified by Plato. Plato believed that that ultimate reality was in the in ideas within the mind. And so sometimes this is presented as idealism, and so you have rationalism as the starting point. The starting point is innate ideas. This is what uh, Plato believed, that there were innate ideas inside the soul. But ultimately, the starting point is faith. Faith is uh, not a separate system of perception. Faith is foundational to every system of perception. Faith here is in human ability to think that we believe that man is so bright and so brilliant and so capable intellectually that starting from principles of pure reason alone, he can arrive at overarching truth that explains everything in the universe. This was both Plato's view and uh, Descartes' view. Now, prior to Immanuel Kant in the late 1700s, every philosopher, every thoughtful person believed that that we could arrive at an ultimate truth, an overarching explanation, or in postmodern terminology, a meta-narrative, an overarching story that would organize all the data. Now, they fought like cats and dogs about what that overarching story was, but up until the end of the 1700s, they believed there was one overarching story. They just couldn't agree what it was. The way you got there was through logic. They believed in logic and reason, and that the universe was rational, and that you could explain it. The second system is called empiricism, 
And empiricism is based on the fact that, that no, we're not born with innate ideas. We don't start with some sort of thought within us and then work our way out. We learn through sense perception. We're born with our souls as an empty slate, and through what we hear, what we see, what we taste, touch, smell, feel, that's how we learn the world around us. This becomes the, uh, both rationalism and empiricism become the foundation for the scientific method, but once again, it's grounded in a faith in human ability to properly interpret the data that comes in uh, through the eyes and through the ears, etc., et and putting all of that together. Now, there are many things that we can learn through rationalism and empiricism, but it's limited. Best example from the scripture is that Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, and God said that uh, God had planted the garden, and he had planted all these trees for, that produced fruit for food, and there was plenty there. And God told them that they could eat freely from all of the trees in the, in the Garden of Eden. And they could have learned that to some degree, to a great degree, empirically. God had already given them the task of identifying and naming the animals and taking care of the, taking care of the garden. And there is a tremendous amount that they could learn through the application of a scientific methodology to learning everything about what was in the Garden of Eden. But there's one thing they could never learn through either rationalism or empiricism. And that one thing is what actually organized all of the data into its proper uh, setting. And that was that there was one tree there they couldn't eat from or shouldn't eat from, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could not gain that knowledge through rationalism or empiricism. It had to come through revelation. So rationalism and empiricism, like rationalism, is also based on the independent use of logic and reason. Now, when historically, when rationalism and empiricism fail as a foundation for cultural knowledge, there's always a reaction, and that reaction is always to go against it, and that's the rise of mysticism. And mysticism is anti-reason. Mysticism is anti-rational. Mysticism turns its, its, its reason gone to seed, and it turns the, the outward look inward and seeks to find truth from inner, some sort of inner light, inner experience, intuition. But again, it's still faith in human ability. See, what each of these systems have is this concept that man can properly interpret his ex- internal experience, his external experience, or his thinking, and come to absol- a knowledge of absolute truth. And so this is, while uh, mysticism operates independent of any revel- revelation, it's non-logical, non-rational, and non-verifiable. Somebody says, comes up and says something, and you immediately... You immediately want to say, well, how do you know that God wants you to do that? Or how do you know that that's true? And it's, oh, I just know it. Well, sometimes with some people, that's a combination of experience. Somebody who has, for example, a police officer in an investigation or someone who is uh, involved in uh, law presenting a case or many other areas or in science, they've got so much experience that it's almost nonverbal for them, and they know something is true, even though at that point they may not be able to give you 
all of the lines of evidence leading to that conclusion. They just have sort of a gut reaction, and um, and and that's really based on their experience in the past, not on some sort of inner light. But this is mysticism. Now, in contrast, for the Christian in the Judeo-Christian heritage, from the biblical heritage, we have revelation, that revelation trumps rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. Revelation means that God, who is the creator of everything, has actually entered into human history and communicates information to mankind so that we can learn some things that we can't discover from from reason or experience. And that would be the case of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. So we have to have revelation from God in order to understand things. And this is what happens during each day in the Garden of Eden that God comes and he is teaching uh, Adam and Eve about the creation, giving them foundation, uh, foundational information so that then they can go out and develop uh, the use of that in their interaction with the creation as they're ruling over the creation as God's vicegerents. Revelation is objective, and it's information that is disclosed from God. Now, as Christians, we're often accused of being irrational and illogical, but the fact is because we believe in revelation. But revelation isn't the opposite of reason and logic. Revelation gives us a foundation, gives us the starting point for reason and logic. And we develop from the scriptures. This is why the psalmist says, it is in your light, God, that we see light. The presupposition, the framework, the foundation that we have for truth comes first from God, and then we build upon that. So this is how we come to knowledge. This is one of the big debates in, in philosophy is how do we come to know anything? But their starting point is always within that circle I had in the previous chart. It's always within creation. But you can't start within creation and build to a – this is one area in which um, – uh, postmodernism has some accurate observations, is you can't start from a finite starting point and build to an infinite meta-narrative to explain everything. You have to start somewhere else. Now, in this chart, what I want to show is this contrast between modernism and postmodernism, because in our world, we live in a world that has a uh, mix of modernists and postmodernists. Actually, we have pre-modernists. Pre-modern are people who believe the Bible. The term that was used for the modern, that came to be used in terms of modernism described those who were following the modern thinking of the rationalists and the empiricists coming out of the Enlightenment. But before the Enlightenment, what dominated? Well, what dominated in the Middle Ages was the thinking of the Bible. They may have come to wrong conclusions at times, and they did, but they believed the Bible would give them that ultimate reference point. And so that's considered pre-modern thinking because it believes in the legitimacy of divine revelation. So modernism ignores or dumps or excludes uh, 
any kind of uh, divine authority, and the authority becomes man himself. And so the human race becomes that ultimate reference point. There's a well-known quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, noted existentialist in the uh, 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, where he said, uh, for a finite reference point, to have me, uh, for a finite point to have any meaning, it has to have an infinite reference point. And it's, it's simply that if you just have a, a dot or just a, a, just a speck of light, for that to have any kind of meaning in terms of its size, intensity, strength, any of those factors, there has to be something ultimate that you reference it to, that you compare it to, that gives it uh, its meaning and definition. So in modernism, the ultimate reference point is human thought, whether it's expressed through, the, through reason, uh, like in the philosophy of De- Descartes, or whether it's expressed through the rational use of data in empiricism. This is the, Descartes is the one who initiates, and he was a theist. He has a, he has an argument, uh, he has his own form of the argument, an ontological argument for the existence of God and other arguments for the existence of God. He was a Jesuit, uh, geometrician, and he, he clearly believed in God. But what, now, when it comes to knowledge, the starting point for Descartes is inside the human soul, not divine revelation. So he shifts that starting point to human human thought. Modernism emphasized uh, empiricism or rationalism until we really get to, uh, just before Immanuel Kant, we come to David Hume. David Hume uh, introduces skepticism into the thought system, showing that neither reason nor neither rationalism nor empiricism can bring about any kind of of certainty with regard to knowledge and truth, and so this created chaos in the um, in the thinking intellectual community. And Immanuel Kant, who wrote his book on critique of pure reason around 1775, right around the time of the American uh, War for Independence, uh, Immanuel Kant says, well, we don't know things as they are. We only know things as we perceive them. This was called the Copernican Revolution in thought because it shifts the center of, of, of knowledge from outside of man to inside of man. Just as uh, the Copernican Revolution in astronomy helped us understand that the center of the unit or the solar system wasn't the Earth, but the sun, so there was a shift in terms of that, that center point. So from Immanuel Kant, you have the rise of subjectivism. This works itself out through the 19th century, and it impacts everything from theology to physics and down through the, into the 20, um, 20th century. So this is a major revolution in thought, that man can't know truth as it is anymore. But they still believed that there was something that would unify truth. This is, this is still called modernism. Postmodernism really isn't a new development, in my opinion. Postmodernism is just the natural consequence of modernism. It's modernism gone to seed because the result of Immanuel Kant's 
subjectivism is that it developed skepticism about knowledge in the 19th century, skepticism about God, skepticism about knowing truth, and this leads to the nihilism of Nietzsche and uh, existentialism where you don't really know truth. There's no overall meaning. There's no hope. It's a black, dark world out there because we only know what we think we know. We don't know anything for sure, and it's pretty hopeless. And and God is dead. And finally, we woke up in uh, West, we by we I mean Western civilization wakes up in the 1980s and begins to realize it. It took a couple hundred years for these ideas to really impact uh, the everyday man on the street. So this then uh, actually what postmodernism, in my opinion, is just existentialism played out to its ultimate logical conclusion, which is we don't know anything, we can't say anything for sure, and there are no absolutes, and even that we're not sure about. So we're just left in in a black hole. But what there, where this goes ethically is since there are no absolutes, we don't have a criteria as thinkers to determine who has a right view. So this means that, that we have many different cultures, and now they're all equal. So that the culture of the most primitive Stone Age tribe in Irian Jaya is no better and no worse than the most advanced uh, Enlightenment culture or the most advanced uh, Western civilization culture in all of history because we don't have any criteria for, for making those kinds of judgments. And and the way this works out, and we see this in this whole thing with Doug Dynasty, is you can't say one person's right and one person's wrong because there's no ultimate criteria for doing that. So this, this little episode is really a great little uh, illustration of how our whole Western civilization has completely... Uh, lost all balance and it's falling apart and it can't really, uh, it can't succeed because it's lost the one thing that gave it coherence, which was an omniscient, omnipresent, infinite God that gave meaning to every detail within society and within culture. So po- that's what postmodernism is, and I'm not even sure that, that, that in the literature there's a lot of debate as to whether uh, whether it ha- what the characteristics are and things like that. It's just the collapse of all of in- enlightenment thought since the time of Descartes, showing that it can't provide any answers uh, for mankind or for the human race. Now, another way of looking at this that I think is very important is looking at this, and, and this is explaining something about what happens with Kantian thought. In West- Western thought, or in thought in general, we look at the world and we see all the details of the world. This can relate to people, anything that we observe, things, events, language, history, law, all of these are, are details. But we need to have something that, that gives order and organization and meaning to just this mass of data that's out there. And we believe that there's an overarching story or an overarching truth or reality that gives meaning to all those details. And that's the upper story here. 
This is where we put universals, universals in terms of God, uh, universals in in terms of absolutes, morals, uh, ideas. These are all upstairs. But when Immanuel Kant came along and said, you can't know things as they are, you can only know things you could perceive, that up to that point, we had universals that gave meaning to the details down below. But in terms of knowledge and intellectual theory, what happens with Immanuel Kant is he draws a brick wall, and you can't go up the stairs and look at what's upstairs anymore to give meaning to what's downstairs. So you're just left with this mass of data downstairs and nothing that can give it meaning. And so what happens now is there's no meaning, there's no God, there's just existential darkness is the only reality, and so it, it, it leads to a culture of despair. No wonder drugs and alcoholism and, you know, all kinds of extreme things have entered into our culture because people are des- desperately trying to find something that gives them some hope and some meaning because intellectually they're told that there's no hope and there's no meaning and they're just a result of a cosmic accident. So they're not any better than anything else. So we, the only thing that gives meaning is the scripture story. So to wrap up tonight, before we get moving, because where, where I'm going with all of this and what we have to understand is that a culture teaches the people within the culture how to think about the things around them. And we've grown up in a postmodern, modern culture And these ideas and the relativism that's there is very much a part of our background. Now, if you've been a believer for a long time and been taking in the word, then it's not so much. If you're a young believer, then then more so. But this is the process of spiritual growth is removing the garbage and putting the truth in place. But for a lot of younger people today who are just coming to know the Lord in their 20s or 30s, they've got a whole history behind them where there's, there, there's, no, there's no absolutes, there's no truth, and they really wrestle with understanding how these things come together. So I just put a few slides together to show the comparison and contrast between biblical Christianity, which is the center column, and then modernism and postmodernism. In terms of the human nature, biblical Christianity says that mankind is thoughtfully created in the image of God, spiritually and physically. He's composed of a spiritual component and a physical component. In modernism, humans are material machines. The universe is purely physical. Nothing exists beyond our senses. In postmodernism, they, they have no real opinion on human nature. They're suspicious of any dogmatic assertion. How can you say anything for sure? You don't know anything. In terms of morality, in biblical Christianity, mankind is internally corrupted by sin, but he can still do relatively good things, though short of divine righteousness. In modernism, mankind is inherently good. See, we've had four or five generations of, peop- uh, of people raised on pure, post- uh, I mean, on pure modernism that man is basically good. That's why they vote Democrat. 
because they they don't understand that that the whole philosophy of the Democrat Party is grounded upon the assumption that man is basically good, and he's not. So they're living in a fantasy world. In postmodernism, it denies objective evil. Now, if you deny objective evil, how can you condemn the Holocaust? It's impossible intellectually. For, for the postmodern, morality is just a cultural construct. There are no absolutes. Well, that's, in other words, you think the Holocaust is evil? That's just your opinion. The Nazis thought it was good, and that was their opinion. We don't have a meta-narrative to discern whether you're right or the Nazis are right. All we have is, is what works. And what works today may not be what works tomorrow. So you can't make those kind of judgments. In terms of free will, and biblical Christianity teaches that we have free will. It's diminished by sin, but we're still morally responsible for the decisions that we make. In modernism, every human being is purely autonomous and self-governing, and they can choose their own direction because there's no external authority. goes back to that. There's no God. There's no external authority. You can just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. In postmodernism, people are products of their own culture, and they only imagine that they are self-governing. So you are determined more by your culture than by your volition. So it's somebody else's fault. In terms of reason, in biblical Christianity, reason is necessary, but it's not the basis for understanding reality. It's, reality is just, uh, reason can discover some truth, uh, but revelation is also needed. Revelation is what ultimately governs what, what is true. In modernism, rationalism and empiricism are the only basis for discovering truth, but in postmodernism, postmodernism denies objective reason and rationalism is a myth. It's just a veneer. It really doesn't give solutions. And in terms of progress or history, biblical Christianity teaches that mankind isn't progressing toward anything. Advances are positive, but there's no utopia brought in by man. Whereas in postmodernism, I mean modernism, mankind is, he's not basically evil, so he's improvable. He's perfectible. So mankind is progressing by science and reason. In postmodernism, it denies any kind of objective reason. Uh, rationalism, again, is just a, a myth. So there's no, there's no hope there at all. So, this influences the world we live in. It influences politics. It influences law. It influences social studies. I think social studies are more evil in terms of, of challenging Christians than, than the sciences are. But this is, but all of us have been impacted from this through the music we listen to, uh, because most of the music that has been popular in the 20th century grew out of either a pure modernist worldview a romanticized modernist worldview or a postmodern worldview. And, and so the values that are expressed in both the music and the lyrics are grounded in modernism or postmodernism, not in a pure theistic biblical worldview. And you can take that in every area of human thought. So when we look at a passage like Romans 12.2, which says that we are to be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind, it's not just learn. It, it, it is learning things like like homosexuality is sin, lying is sin, um, you know, murder is sin. All these things are sin, and we shouldn't do them. But it's more than just exchanging one set of values for another, because you can be a postmodern relativist and have as your personal ethic a biblically correct ethic. But the problem is you're doing a right thing in a wrong way, because the wrong way is you're still thinking like your culture in a postmodern way. So that little adage that we use that a right thing done in a wrong way applies to thinking. You can think right thoughts, but in a wrong framework, and it's just as wrong as if you're thinking wrong thoughts in a wrong framework. So we have to think about not only what we think, the content, but how we think. We have to learn to think biblically. We have to learn to become radical, militant biblicists in how we think as well as what we think. So Paul is going to take this principle that he's outlined in the first two verses, these principles he's outlined in the first two verses of chapter 12, and start applying them in terms of the Christian and the body of Christ in the rest of chapter 12, and then applying that to the realm of government in chapter 13, as well as in relation to one another, and then uh, applying that to loving one another in the last part of chapter 13 and on into chapter uh, 14 and even into the beginning of chapter 15. So we'll come back and press on into that next area dealing with spiritual gifts next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, walk our way through the history of ideas and how they have influenced our Western civilization and Western culture over the last uh, 300 years and how this presents a challenge to anyone who wishes to think on the basis of what you have revealed in Scripture, and that we have to learn how to expose within our own souls uh, the the wrong ways of thinking and the, as well as the wrong thoughts so that we can replace them with a biblical way of thinking and a biblical approach to life. And, Father, we pray that we might recognize this is an ongoing battle that takes place over the course of our life and that we need to be willing to step to the challenge of this to transform our minds from the, and our lives from the inside out. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.